Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. This week, this month, really, marks the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution of 1917. You may have suspected something was up by the number of blood-red books coming out with the words Vanguard, Bolshevik, or October on the cover, or the uptick in the number of communist book clubs meeting in libraries across the country. And, uh... This is one party Smarty Pants is not going to miss out on, and I promise you that is the last joke I'm going to make this episode. So to celebrate this auspicious occasion, we are going back in time to turn-of-the-century Russia and Italy, where another anti-fascist movement was born and arguably also died. And we're doing it with a little bit of family drama. Antifa is on everybody's lips these days, and the movement was born almost a century ago in Mussolini's Italy, where black shirts brawled with socialists and communists and anarchists and other leftists in the streets. And if that was too improper, Il Duce had them shot and killed. Things got really violent and very personal in Mussolini's Italy, and the best way to illustrate that is with the portrait of a family. So I'll be talking to Caroline Moorhead about the Rosselli family, who sacrificed so much in the fight against fascism. People like them existed, and they were very brave. I think one has to remember that. that These brothers and their friends were incredibly brave. They knew exactly what they risked. And though neither of them could ever expect it, they would actually be murdered by Mussolini. At around the same time, a thousand-odd miles to the north, the Bolshevik Party swept into power in Russia and created the first communist state ever. The Soviet experiment completely changed the landscape of national and global politics, which might be the understatement of the century. But just like with the Rossellis, sometimes the best way to tackle big ideas is to start small, with one of the oldest institutions, and one that the Soviets tried to change to little avail, the family. And where better to start than with the family of the Bolsheviks themselves? Completed in 1931, the House of Government was literally just that, home to most of the Bolsheviks who built the Soviet Union and the largest residential building in Moscow, across the river from the Kremlin. Now it's known as the House on the Embankment, 
after a novel by Yuri Trufinov, who grew up there amidst the tennis courts and shooting ranges and cafeterias and libraries that made up its communal spaces, just like these women. The very idea, the very idea of this building was absolutely utopian. When we moved into this building, I cried all day long. I didn't like the building or the apartment. It was so uninviting. Every piece of furniture was numbered. It felt so alien, so cold. I couldn't cope with it. We hid all over the place. The building's courtyards are built in a really interesting way. There are so many passages. When you know all the nooks and crannies, you enjoyed a lot of freedom. Those were the voices of some of the kids who grew up there, in the house at Government. Daughters of the commissars and secretaries who lived and dined and disappeared there. Theirs are some of the voices captured in Yuri Slezkin's new book, The House of Government, a history on the scale of a Russian family saga. Time's about 500. It's a portrait of the personal and public lives of the young Bolsheviks who came to populate its rooms. From their f- those were the voices of some of the kids who grew up there. Children's loss of faith. How do you tell the story of 2,000 people, let alone a nation? How do you communicate what life was like in those 505 rooms, or even in the Soviet Union itself? These are some of the questions animating the book. Yuri Sleskin joined us in the studio to paint a portrait of the lives of the people living there. So thanks for coming to the studio, Yuri. Well, it's good to be here. Can you um, start by telling us who built the House of Government and what it was? It has such a mythical name. The House of Government was for the members of the Soviet government, and that meant almost the very top. Stalin and his closest associates stayed in the Kremlin, just across the river from the House of Government. Uh, and there was really one other prestigious building where some high officials lived, but pretty much everyone else who was based in Moscow, who was high enough in the hierarchy, lived there. That meant so-called people's commissars, which is to say the ministers of the Soviet government, deputy commissars, industrial managers, Red Army commanders, gulag, the secret police officials, socialist realist writers, um, and then assorted worthies, including the man who embalmed Lenin's body after his death, the man who wrote the music uh, to the Soviet national anthem, Lenin's secretary, Stalin's relatives, and so on. Um, and so the idea was to, first of all, provide party and state officials with a permanent place to live, and at the same time to create a prototype for communist domesticity. So that building was supposed to be the first in a series of buildings of a new type. Uh, but of course, what happened is that 
they built their own house of government and then they didn't build any other houses of that kind. So it's still there, one of a kind. So what was this new version of domesticity? What was it supposed to accomplish? Well, th- that's the one of the biggest questions in the book because the communists didn't really know what it meant. They mostly improvised. Um, they had a faith. They expected the coming of communism. But they had very little guidance uh, on how to live in the meantime. The institution of the family was a problem in any case. Now, how to deal with it? How to accommodate it? What would it mean to be temporarily ensconced in a family apartment? All those questions were up for debate, and there was some debate. But by the time they moved into the house of government, they had, in effect, given up thinking about it. And so there they were, living in their large apartments, in that huge building with 505 furnished, fully furnished apartments, feeling, many of them, vaguely guilty for the way they were living their lives. So what was the atmosphere like in there? Because they were all living there with their families, and there were also various other rooms in the House of Government that weren't just domiciles. I think there was billiards and tennis and right. a hairdressing salon and all kinds of things. Right. Did they have like a Friday night potlucks or gatherings? What was it like? No, that's interesting. So that actually is what made that house a prototype for communist domesticity, is that much of life inside was meant to be collective. Those family apartments, 505 of them or so, were sort of an afterthought, an exception. Um, the What the house was primarily about was the public spaces that it contained, and that included a cafeteria and a theater and a movie theater, a gym, post office, bank, walk-in clinic, daycare center, kindergarten, dance halls, shooting range, tennis court, and dozens of rooms meant for various occasions and various activities. Uh, The grown-ups, the actual communist officials assigned to particular apartments and their wives and parents didn't really ever go there, didn't use those facilities. Nobody was interested in using the cafeteria, which did not bode well for communist domesticity. Virtually every, well, not virtually, every family had servants who did the cooking, um, babysitting, and so on. Um, But there were some people within the house, some very important people, who did use those facilities, and they were the children. So the house was a place where government officials lived, and it was uniquely interesting that way, because imagine 
the government of a huge state, the largest state in the world, an enormous empire, contained under the same roof and living as neighbors, physically neighbors. But they weren't neighbors in the social sense of the term. They didn't really visit each other. The men and almost all of the officials assigned to particular apartments were men. And so the women who lived in the house, almost all of them were there as dependents uh, or wives' relatives of those men. They were never there. They worked from about 11 a.m., sometimes earlier, until 1 or 2 a.m. So they would come home to sleep and then sometimes have breakfast at home with their wives, sometimes not, and then just leave for work. Most of, the, of their wives also had jobs and were professionals. Uh, economists, uh, pharmacists, doctors, engineers, uh, editors, and so on. So they were away most of the time. So the house, that enormous house, and especially its basements, its courtyards, and the surrounding area belonged to the children. It was the children, really, or only the children, who lived under communism, or whatever was to precede communism. They were the ones who lived together, who hung out together, who visited each other all the time, who needed, wanted, and enjoyed each other's company, and who would remember those days and that company and their friends for the rest of their lives. I think that children are a really interesting aspect of the book because they play into so many elements of how the adults related to them. This question you bring up of the faith of Bolshevism or communism and the adults being unable to transmit it to their kids necessarily. Um, Can you talk about the divide, I guess, between the adults and the children in the house? Well, the adults didn't have friends, really. They had comrades in arms. They had fellow true believers. And the children, not only did they have friends, they believed in friendship as perhaps the ultimate value, the most important thing in the world, and they would for the rest of their lives. Um, For the parents, love, including physical erotic love, was associated with the victory of the revolution and the coming of communism. They associated the two identified one with the other and felt disappointment and felt betrayed when, in a sense, both failed. But most important, as you said, the parents were believers. They had something they repeatedly called faith. They were Marxists. They thought of themselves as being rational. And in some ways, they were But they were not shy about using the word faith and about the fact that they believed in the essentially end of the world as we know it. The world to come, communism, was in equal measure something that was going to happen inevitably 
and something that needed them to bring it about. A world of universal love or eternal love, of true and universal friendship, a world with no meaningful, irresolvable contradictions. So they were their own protestations to the country, notwithstanding they were men and women of faith, and not just any old faith, but millenarian apocalyptic faith. They thought of revolution as an apocalypse, as a cataclysm that would, in a sense, devour the old world, destroy Babylon, and bring about something unheard of, something unseen. Right. I think that reading of the Bolsheviks as this millenarian sect really plays well into the purges and Stalin's almost witch hunts. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and what effect that had on the House of Government? Yeah, they weren't almost witch hunts. They were witch hunts. Yeah. Um, it had a devastating effect on the House of Government. About 800 residents um, were evicted from the house and accused of deviancy, degeneracy, counter-revolutionary activity, and so on. According to the latest data, 344 of them are known to have been executed. The rest of the 800 were sentenced to various uh, forms of imprisonment. Uh, and during the at, at the height of the Great Terror in 1937-38, every night, agents would come and uh, people would listen to the steps outside, hoping it wasn't, they it didn't come for them. Uh, and then they would knock on the door or ring the bell or sometimes enter using their own keys in at night. Um, and then escort those residents one at a time to the black car waiting outside and then off to prison for interrogations. And the, in the cases of the men, of the actual officials, the execution usually. And what effect did this have on the families that remained after the officials had been taken away? Well, the men never returned, and the women did return much older, usually sick, usually according to their daughters' stories, memoirs, hardly recognizable, and lost in this world that they would return to. In a world where there was no faith left, uh, and so it wasn't just the husbands that were gone. It was that whole world of true belief, of expecting communism, of seeing the world through that prism of that fervent expectation. So they would come back as strangers in their children's homes. Most of the children didn't want them there. Most of the stories about those women's last years are very sad, tragic stories, usually told by their daughters who would feel guilty about it, 
but described the situation as impossible since they couldn't really communicate. They were living in different worlds. And one reason why they were living in different worlds is because the children were no longer believers. They couldn't understand really what it was that their parents had spent their lives fighting for and what they had in some way sacrificed their lives for. Doesn't really sound like the dream of communist domesticity in the end. No, except that most of the children, and I interviewed about 60 people, mostly women, mostly those who were little girls in the 1930s in that building, um, were thinking of those years as the happiest years of their lives. And it was partly because it was the sort of age of innocence at home with their parents under the warm light of a you know orange lampshade before the abrupt end of that knock on the door. Uh, but also because it does sound like a wonderful time for those elite kids in that elite house. They were at one with their country, at the time with their parents. The world made sense to them, and they were in love with each other. So where did you get the idea to focus on the House of Government and I guess the the structure of it? Because in the opening of the book, you talk about how the reader should approach it as a family history or a family tragedy, really. Where did that conceit come from? By accident, like most things in life, I suppose, or most important things in life. I, many years ago, I wrote an article called The Soviet Union as a Communal Apartment. It was a metaphor about the Soviet Union, you know, with the Russians living in the kitchen and making all the important decisions, and then one room per nation, per nationality. Uh, and so then I decided that I wanted to write a history of an actual communal apartment. I grew up in one. My grandparents lived in communal apartments, and they were very interesting places with, you know, strangers, several families living in the same apartment, sharing kitchens, um, corridors, bathrooms, so on. Uh, but then I realized that it would be so difficult to find enough people to make sure that there was enough continuity and consistency to the story that I could really tell the story of one apartment, locating everyone, making sure that everyone would agree to share things with me and so on. So I was searched for a number of, or, you know, looked at a number and then decided that it would probably be safer to do a building and then ended up with the biggest building of them all <laughs> because it, as I said, was populated by people who left a tremendously rich paper trail and because it had the added advantage of being not just a place containing more or less random characters, but in some ways a metaphor for the Russian Revolution, the, the place where those revolutionaries would come home and the place where the revolution would die.
I'm reading Anna Karenina right now, and Yuri's book is on the same epic scale, which makes sense since the history of the House of Government is, in a lot of ways, the history of an entire country and its downfall. So if you like Russian epics, you'll love his book. Big thanks also to Christine Buchner and the team behind the film Neighbors and the Kremlin, who gave us permission to use audio clips from the Daughters of the House of Government. If you want to watch the full documentary, we have links to the video on the episode page on our website, theamericanscholar.org. And now, let's go a few thousand miles south, to Italy, into a portrait of another family that tells a much bigger story than it initially lets on. It's Florence, 1924. Mussolini has tipped his campaign of intimidation, murder, bribery, arson, and destruction too far with the brutal killing of a socialist politician. The murder of Giacomo Mattiotti gave birth to a 20-year resistance to Mussolini's violent, fascist government. And at the forefront of that resistance was a Florentine family, Emilia, Carlo, and Nello Rosselli. These three are famous in Italy. Every city has a Rosselli Boulevard or square, but they're barely known over here in the States, even though Eleanor Roosevelt herself brought Amelia to America after her sons died. Caroline Moorhead sets out to change all that with her new book, A Bold and Dangerous Family, a portrait not only of a pair of activist brothers, but also of the mother who passed on her unwavering ideals to them. Thanks for chatting with me, Caroline. Thank you so much. So um, A Bold and Dangerous Family is the latest addition to your resistance series about the 20th century fight against fascism. So what inspired this series and, and how did you pick the particular stories that you tell in them? I think like all these books that one starts on, it happened almost by chance. I was sent something to review about 15 years ago, and it was the memoirs of a woman who'd been on a train to Auschwitz called Charlotte Delbo, who was a poet and a writer. And I thought initially of doing a biography about her, but then my editor said, no, what's much more interesting is if you write about the whole train of women. And there were these 230 women from the French resistance who were put on a train to Auschwitz. And I wrote their story. They had left for Auschwitz by the spring of 1943, the end of 42. And I wanted a story to take me to the end of the war. So then I did a, this book called Village of Secrets, which was about a, a small series of villages in the middle of France where they set about saving Jewish people and resistors. And then I suddenly thought that it would be nice to look and see if Italy was similar or different. So I found the story of these two brothers called Carlo and Nello Rosselli and their mother Emilia, who were very, very early opponents to Mussolini. I mean, long before there was an organized resistance to Mussolini. And they were Florentine and they were Jewish. And they started a sort of network, or they were part of a sort of network, which consisted of printing and distributing underground newspapers and also getting opponents to Mussolini, spiriting them out of Italy to safety in France. 
So what was it in particular that drew you to this family? They were one of the first to oppose Mussolini, but was it the fact that they were so close-knit and so well-connected? I was drawn to them precisely because the three of them were extremely close, and they were great friends with a historian called Salvemini. And the wonderful things, point of view of a, of a writer, was that they had always been letter writers, and ever since the little boys were small, they had written to each other probably virtually every day. And since the mother and the two sons were always in different places, whether in prison or in exile, there were an enormous number of letters. I mean, there were about 10,000 letters in their archive, uh, going back to the time when they were babies until the time they were murdered at the end of the 30s. But I should say, as much as anything, I was drawn to this family because they were so extremely humorous and funny and clever and full of ideas and brave. I mean, they were a wonderful family to spend three years with. Yeah, I guess that does have a lot to do with whether your research is pleasurable or not. Um, so to dig into the the family's philosophy a little bit deeper, where did their their opposition to Mussolini come from and sort of their ideals? Did it all start with Amelia, the, the matriarch of the family? Yes. Amelia grew up in a family of, of people devoted to the unification of Italy, the Risorgimento. Both sides of her family had been involved in fighting for it. And she was absolutely imbued with a sort of fervor and patriotism and love of country and desire to do duty. And she was quite a stern mother, and she was a huge influence on the boys because she'd parted from their father. Um, I think without her, probably none of this would have happened. And when I started writing the book, I thought it was going to be really mainly about the two young men and their families. But actually, as I got into the book, I saw that Amelia was really the sort of key figure in it because she, of course, survived after they were killed, and she, in the end, took all the children and the grandchildren to America from the moment of her birth, which was in Venice in 1870, to her death almost 90 years later. She was the sort of backbone on which the story rests. Was she like one of the few women that were really active at the time? Was what she was doing unusual or was that sort of typical for the Italian intelligentsia? Amelia was a rare mixture of things. She was clever and very well educated. And she became a playwright at a time when there were really no women Italian playwrights. Um, and she was a successful playwright. And she wrote some of her plays amazingly in the Venetian dialogue. But at the same time, she, was, she wasn't exactly a feminist. And she was quite tough on her English daughter-in-law, Carlo's wife, who she felt was too independent. I mean, she was genuinely torn at the extent to which she thought women should put themselves forward. But she was, she ran several campaigns about getting fair pay for women workers in Florence. So she was a sort of mixture of the two. And the family was Jewish. Did that complicate their activism or strengthen it in any way? Were they particular targets of, of Mussolini's regime? The Jews in Italy, right up until 1938, when the uh, anti-Semitic laws came in, were treated relatively well, even after Mussolini and Hitler made made their pact. Um, in fact, there was a very small Jewish population in Italy, some sort of 45,000 people, and they would lived very often in, in cities, and they were very well educated, and many of them were professors and lawyers. 
and they felt themselves to be Italian. I mean, in fact, what Amelia used to say always was Italian first, Jewish second. And there were quite a lot of Jewish supporters of Mussolini in the early years. And it was not until the Germans took over, occupied Italy in the summer of 1943, that the Jews were deported to the camps. Between 38 and 43, they had a bad time. They lost their jobs. But no one was actually deported before the Germans started rounding them up and sending them to Poland. Mm. So let's talk a little bit more about um, how Carlo and Nello really got their start in anti-fascist organizing in Italy? Um, they Both of them served just a little bit towards the end of the First World War, and their older brother Aldo had been killed, so that they were students in Florence in the early 1920s looking for PhD subjects, and it was then that they came under the historian Salvemini. And they put together this group of like-minded young people, many of them wouldn't come back from the wars, um, and they had a club, which they filled with newspapers and speakers. After Mussolini had Matteotti, the socialist leader, assassinated because he was producing uh, for Parliament um, a report on fascist crimes, um, that sort of galvanized the young. And that happened in 1924. Up until then, Carlo Nello and their friends had been putting together new sheets hostile to the to the fascists, but it had been quite low level. But Matteotti's murder and his disappearance, because they didn't find the body for over a month, sort of galvanized not only them, but a whole generation of young people who had been prepared to accept a sort of general drift towards fascist rule, but saw in this murder something quite different. So in various parts of Italy, in different cities, in Turin and Milan and Rome especially, and Florence, these young people began to sort of sharpen up what they were doing. And of course, as they sharpened up, so they came into terrible trouble with the fascist squads who hunted them down and beat them up and put them in prison and sent them off to the penal islands, Lipari and Ustica of Sicily where both Nello and Carlo spent a certain amount of time. Right. Yeah, Mussolini is, I think, justly remembered for the the awful violence that his followers inflicted on members of the resistance. What kind of successes did the anti-fascist organizers have against the regime when they weren't being locked up or sent to the penal colonies? It's very hard to judge how successful it was. Um, in in many ways, when you see them, what the things they did, it seems very amateurish and they were no match for being picked up. There was a very, very effective police spy network and there were reports on the wall. I mean, one of the most enjoyable parts of my research was finding in the archives in Rome all the police reports and archives on the anti-fascists, which detail their lives. I mean, they knew exactly where they were and what they were doing. Many of them went into exile, and when Carlo did his spectacular escape from Lipari, he went into exile in Paris. He couldn't really come back to Italy. And Paris was the headquarters, was the capital of the Italian exiles, and they lived impoverished lives in which they did a great deal of talking, and there was not much to be done. But Carlo masterminded um, events that seem almost absurd. They were sort of naive. For instance, he had an aeroplane and, and a young 
man, a young colleague, flew it over Milan and Turin, dropping leaflets, um, anti, anti-fascist leaflets. I mean, this seems such a sort of small and innocent thing. It, what did it do? It kept alive the the spirit of anti-fascism. Um, when uh, Mussolini fell and the Germans occupied Italy and Mussolini retreated to the Republic of Salo, a partisan movement, which then became a political party, grew out of Carlo's teaching um, and the teaching of the resistance people who had been in Paris. So it it kept alive something. Um, what it actually achieved is very hard to say. Right, right. And you could even say that it, do you think it could even be said to have kept the spirit alive well into the anti-fascist and communist organizing of the latter half of the 20th century in Italy? It's very difficult to know to what extent what was happening in the 30s and into the war actually carried into Italy afterwards. The Partito d'Azione were the first government in power in Italy after the war, but they only lasted nine months, less than nine months. And the Christian Democrats then got in uh, with the help of the Vatican and uh, stayed in power, as we know, for 30-odd years. Now, the communists, who had been very, very active in the resistance, and they indeed had been active before the war, long before the war, many, many of the communist resistance were the people who were sent off to the penal islands. They fought very bravely as partisans during the war, but they never translated that into real peacetime gains. So it's hard to say how much. I mean, when I was doing my research, I used to ask professors whether or not Rosselli was still studied today, were these anti-fascists, were their writings studied in universities today? And the answer is no, not really. I mean, they were they were left-wing, they were, they were Democrats, they were socialists, they were not communists. They wrote and spoke a great deal about a, another Italy, a democratic Italy. Um, it's hard to say to what extent they've lasted. Like, there are heroes in Italy. Their names are remembered everywhere. There are squares and streets and buildings named after them. Every big city in Italy has a Carlo Rosselli Avenue. Um, But how much the young know about who the Rossellis were, I don't really know. It's quite a story. I mean, grand escapes from penal colonies, invisible ink. Um, And then ultimately, Amelia and the remainder of her family were were granted passage to the U.S., right? Yes, they were to America. They lived in in the States for until 48. And, I mean, Amelia was rather amazing because, you see, Amelia was already in her 60s, and she found herself with these two distraught widows and their seven children. And she got through Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, helped her get visas for America, and they settled just outside New York, where by then Salvemini was also there. And again, there was, by 1939-40, there was quite a large Italian exiled community. But again, the whole fascist, anti-fascist story played out because among the many, many Italians already living in America, there was a very strong pro-Mussolini faction. I mean, it was really the the dominating one. The anti-fascists were very small. And some of my most fascinating research indeed was in America, looking at the, if you like, the fights between the Italian fascists and anti-fascists in America 
Mussolini seemed rather wonderful to the Italian-Americans because he was restoring sort of grandeur to Italy. Um, and they weren't there to see the, his thugs beat up people in the street. That is enough family drama for one episode of Smarty Pants. Join us in two weeks at the end of October, my favorite month, for our spookiest episode yet. We've got witches, zombies, death, and the most futuristic burial practice you've ever heard of. As told to me by the world's most famous mortician and a British witchologist. Which is totally a word and what I'm going to be for Halloween. Please avoid any spooks today, this Friday the 13th, so you can make it to the episode intact. It's going to be a really good one. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. AdWanted UK is the provider of single-source media data for agencies, media owners, brands, and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering, called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader, from Adwanted UK.